had thoughts this morning as I was coming and walking in and get cold to the bone. Yes, nasty cold out there. And I had the thought that I'm, I'm glad I'm not a Mormon right now. Um, and I, I, I say that, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that, because I, I know good and well that somewhere there is um, a couple guys riding on a bicycle with their tie on and their shirt, and they're making house calls. And I'm thinking, man, that's cold. And I, I just every once in a while have thoughts like that because I see them at random times, uh, various places throughout town, and thinking, man, they're on a bicycle. Uh, and I know what they're doing. If, you've, if they visit your house, you know, they're, they're knocking on your door and um, wondering if you know about the Mormon faith, if you are following uh, what they call the version of the Bible, the tra- their, their edition of that. Um, and they want to make sure that you know the pathway to salvation. And, and they are, are doing this work, cold, rain, heat, on their bicycles with their tie on and, and white shirt. Young guys, 21, 22 maybe. Um, and, and so whatever we think about that, we, we cannot deny the fact that they're very sincere. They are very serious about what they do. And I sit there smugly in my heated uh, car as I'm going to church thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not a Mormon. And, that, and that's the thought process that's going on here. But I, I just want to present to you that what they're doing, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses and others that are of similar uh, faith, is that they're not doing these diligent works because they love you so much. They're doing these diligent works because they want to get saved. They want to make sure that they have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. So that when it comes time to their own death and demise, that before God, they can say to God, look at what I did. I endured persecution. I endured hardships to proclaim uh, the word of God. And that's their motivation. So as we look at that, I want you to understand, it's really not so much about their love for you, but about their desire to be saved. Now, before we speak too harshly about that, I wonder how many of you are here because you desire to be saved. Thinking that by attending church on a cold, rainy day, that you are putting an extra dot, a check, by your name. By attending church or by reading the Bible or by giving in the offering that you just gave, that perhaps maybe God sees you better because you did these things. If we're not careful, what we condemn others for, we ourselves do, if we're not careful. And so, with this thought in mind, I want us to go to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to continue our study of this chapter. We're going to look this morning at specifically verse 15, uh, and I'm shooting for 22, all right? (laughs) Um, 
just in times of study, I'm thinking, what does this mean? I'm wondering, <laughs> I don't know, you just need to know I struggle sometimes uh, trying to figure out what some of, these, what some of the text means. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, maybe I'll stop with verse 18 and give me more time to focus on 20. And what, is, what is that? And, uh, well, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, my goal is to do 22. All right, so with that thought of mind, we, to follow up what we've been talking about up to this point, uh, in chapter 3, he is, Paul is addressing what is the role of law and how do we grow in Christ. Is it by uh, once coming to go to Christ or coming to know him as Lord and Savior by faith, is it somehow, some way we start acting, we start working, we start cooperating, and, and, and by our own strength, our own efforts to fulfill the law, is that now how we proceed? And so is it a, maybe a mixture of grace and law? And what he says in chapter 3 from the first part, it says, just as you began this walk with Christ, is so how you will finish, how you will continue. You received Christ by faith. You received him uh, through the grace of God. You must walk by the grace of God. You must walk by the faith in this grace of God. And so he goes on, and we looked at verse uh, chapter 10, verse, four, uh, verse 10 through verse 14 last week. And it brings us this concept of a curse. That though Jesus Christ was completely without sin, fulfilled the law, did not use law as some form of pride, uh, that, of legalism, but used the law in its intent and was complete in that. But though he had that, he died on a tree, thus revealing a curse. Because in the Old Testament, as quoted in chapter 3, it tells us that anyone, verse 13, that is hanging on a tree is curse. And this is an Old Testament quote from Deuteronomy. And we talked about what that meant, how Jesus, though without sin, was cursed. And Jesus was cursed by God. And Jesus was cursed by God for us. And to understand what that meant, that, that all of our sin, all the things that we are ashamed of, that folks can rightfully curse us over, Jesus became that. I've, I've heard said that... Uh, the, don't be too offended when folks call you bad things or accuse you of bad things because if they really knew the truth, they could say a lot more. And I've thought about that when, when you know, I sent someone you know, saying some bad things, like, well, you know, that's not good, but man, if they really knew the truth about me, uh, they, it'd be a lot worse. And, and just understand, that what you know of your heart is what Jesus becomes. God curses Jesus on the cross, for you. And that is the work that he has done on the cross. And what's, here's, here's, here's the amazing thing. How many of us can stand God cursing? How many, how many of us will survive that? Jesus, on the cross, says, you have forsaken me. He becomes cursed by God. He's put into the tomb, and up he comes out again. What does that mean? Jesus is able to withstand God's curse. He took that which I'm ashamed of, became that, brought it before the judge, God the Father. He was condemned for that. But Jesus in his eternal righteousness outlasted my sin. And he comes up out of the tomb and says, okay, it's done. It is finished. And that blows my mind. 
It just blows my mind. We just sung a little bit ago that we could never know how much it meant for Jesus to die on that cross for us. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to let it stop me from trying to figure it out. Because I found that the more I contemplate that, the more I think about that, the more I praise God and rejoice in what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. You never outgrow what Jesus did on the cross. Some folks say, man, Pastor, you know, you've been talking about the cross a lot. You know, you can't talk about it enough. You can't talk about it enough. And, and so, okay, that was the review. Um, so, <laughs> um, we'll go now to uh, verse 15. And he's going he's gonna to talk about this promise. And I didn't really get to spend adequate time on verse 14 last week, so I'm going to do that as well. Um, and uh, he says, all this that I'm sharing with you, Paul is saying, is given to you by God's promise, not by law. You don't trust in your ability to perform the law for your salvation. It's done by God's promise. Now, notice verse 14. And in fact, let's just, um, I know it's kind of, well, let's start with verse 13. And let's read from verse 13 through verse 22. In honor of this being God's word, let's, let's stand as we read this together. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. You may be seated. So, in verse 14, what I first want to bring to your attention is the content of the promise. What did God promise? Uh, and so, in Genesis 12, it, it echoes all the way back to Genesis 12. And I hope you realize... Um, for what we've been doing the last two, three years, is actually just implications of what we preached on in Genesis. All that we did in Hebrews is implications in Genesis. What we're doing in Galatians is all implications of Genesis. So if you miss Genesis, I encourage you, read about it. Go If you need to, go online. There's sermons, uh, years worth of sermons on, on Genesis, but especially Genesis 12, 15, 17, 20, just the whole book, you know. Uh, <laughs> But in this is the initial point where God gives promises to mankind concerning their sin. You first see about sin in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, God says, out of Eve, a seed will come. 
out of woman a seed will come, and this seed will have the heel bruised by the serpent, but this seed will crush the serpent's head. And so this is a picture of one who will deliver us from sin, uh, one who will rescue us that will come from mankind. And Genesis 12 is now narrowed down to Abraham and his line. In Genesis 12, he says that I will out of you uh, bring your seed and their nations will come out of you. And indeed, all the nations will be blessed because of you. And so we've got this in Genesis 12. It's repeated again in Genesis 17 uh, in, in Genesis 22, I believe, in, as well as in Genesis 15. Uh, you've got that same promise repeated over and over again, a covenant that is unconditional. God says, I'm going to do it. It rests nothing on your condition, Abraham, but I'm going to do it. In fact, in Genesis 15, uh, there's this interesting uh, little Jewish history or uh, ancient history where animal is cut in half. An animal is cut in half, both sides, blood's uh, mixed in, in the pathway, and the one who was making the covenant was to walk in the midst of these halves as a, way, as a way of saying, if this covenant does not come true, if I do not fulfill my obligation, let me be as these animals. <clears throat> Abraham's getting scared when he sees this in Genesis 15 until he sees God walk the path. God walks a path and says, basically, it's going to happen. If, if, it's, if, it's, if I don't make it happen, it's going to be as if I'm dead and God doesn't die. And so he walks the path saying this is an unconditional promise. And so Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 14 elaborates on what is this blessing that God has given through the Jewish people to all the nations. Verse 14 is simply this, that in Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to all the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is the blessing? Was it land? It was that for the people of Israel, but so much more. Was it to be a nation? Oh, it was so much more. It was that for all the nations who come to God in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God is given to them. That is the blessing of the nations. It is the hope of all the world to have the Spirit of God walking with us. Now, here's what that means. I've said before that we cannot hope to do the law and find salvation. But what we do hope in is God in the Spirit of Christ walking with us, leading us. And by following his lead, there is the work that is being done through us. But it's by trust in God's Spirit that we are saved. Is by trusting in God's spirit that his presence is there, delivering us from this world, delivering us from sin. The presence will always be while we walk this earth, but the power has now been muted because of God. So, what does that look like? Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, in verse 14, someone could have been circumcised and it could have been a terrible thing because they were trusting that. Or someone could have been filled with the Spirit of God and was circumcised and did it out of love, and it was a good thing. They looked the same, but the motivation was altogether different. It could be that uh, someone of the, uh, in the Galatia was sub- subjecting themselves to dietary restrictions, and it could have been a work of law. Or they could have been doing it as a free act of love, but came through the Spirit of God working in them. 
and it was totally different. It could be that you are teaching Sunday school, or it could be me preaching, or we could be sitting in a uh, anti-abortion sit-ins, or we could be in nuclear freeze demonstrations. We could be in, in food share involvements and co-ops, and uh, you name the job that looks good, that looks fruitful, and it could be the same thing. But one could be the work of a law, and that you're trusting in it, thinking if I do this, therefore I'm a better Christian, I'm a better follower of God, and you are being condemned by that. Or you could be doing these same activities and you do it because the Spirit of God is leading you and you do it as an expression of love of what God has done. That becomes worship. So looking on the outside, two people could look exactly the same, doing the exact same things. But from God's perspective, he sees the heart and knows that there's a radical difference between someone worshiping, following the Spirit of God, versus the one person who's doing this out of his own efforts Trying to please God by doing it. Guess what, guys? You can't make God love you more than he already does. Do you understand that? I know that's strange. That doesn't, that's not how this world works. But God cannot love you more than he already does. He doesn't love you more because you came to church today. He doesn't love you more because you gave money a little bit ago. He doesn't love you more because you, you sang. He loved me and he loves you when, while you were still sinners. He sent his son to die for you. So what does that tell you? Stop trying to make him love you. He said, I already love you. And here's the spirit of God's presence in your life to verify the love that he has for us. So I just wanted to spend a little time with the content of the, of the promise. But now verse 15 through 18, let's look at the priority of the promise. Why, why is this so important? Well, he gives a human example. He says, look, you know, man-made covenants, uh, evidently in that day and time, there was a covenant that could be made that was made prior to someone's death, but it was unchangeable. You, you couldn't change it. In fact, you remember the story of the prodigal son? And the, and the, the, the son comes to the father and says, God, uh, father, give me my portion now. Even though he hadn't died yet, give me my inheritance. How many of you would like that for your children to come up to you and say, you know what? You know, I just have no more use of hanging around with you anymore. Why don't you just give me, give me what you owe me and let me check out. All right. So that's kind of the, the situation that Jesus is describing. And evidently there was a covenant where that could be done prior to their death. And so it's this thought that's in mind. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it's been ratified. It's a done deal. Just because something comes later on didn't annul the previous covenant. So verse 16 and the promises were made to Abraham, to his offspring. It did not say, and to offsprings, but referring, referring to men, but instead referring to one, to your offspring. Now, who is Christ? What he's saying is, offspring we know can refer to a plural sense, but Paul is taking to understand this is a singular person that is in, my, in question here. When he said offspring, in Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2, he's talking about Christ. In Christ, all the nations will be blessed. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, actually 430 years after the promise given to Jacob, 645 years after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So let me ask you this question. Did Abraham, was he saved by the law? No, because Moses still hadn't been born yet. Okay? The Ten Commandments hadn't been given. He couldn't. He couldn't, all right? Abraham was saved by faith and a promise, all right? 
So God's not going to change things up now 430 years later, including all the years prior to Abraham, those who came to God. Mankind has always come to God by faith in his grace. The New Testament was not bringing out a new uh, way as far as God saving us. It was giving us new information as to how God saved us. But in the Old Testament, it's still the same. Abraham had to come to God by faith. And so, uh, the law, when it did come, did not change how God was doing things. Now, I've shared with you a, a week or two ago that uh, my granddad gave me uh, the car that I drive, uh, uh, a Cadillac, and um, it was an extremely gracious thing. Is a picture to me of grace because I could tell you and he could tell you any number of reasons why I shouldn't drive that car. And, and he paid for some of those reasons why I shouldn't uh, drive that car. Um, but he did. He gave it to me uh, simply because I was his grandson. Um, he gave it to me. Now, what if sometime later he said, you know, Jared, you like that car, don't you? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Well, I'll tell you, well, let's change things up a little bit. Uh, from now on, uh, if you want to continue to drive that car, you're going to have to come weekly and clean my house and mow the grass and work in the garden for me every week. Now, would that be a problem? I, I would probably do it because he's my granddad and because he gave me the car. But now the whole dimension has totally changed, hasn't it? So now if granddad ever ask, hey, can you take me somewhere or can you let me drive that car for a little bit? I'm going to resist it. No, I've been working for that. No, I'm not going to let you drive that car. I've been cleaning, cleaning your bathroom. I don't want to do that. You know? And so now it becomes something that is owed to me. And something now, when someone says, look at that car, there's a little bit sense of, of a different reaction of pride. Yeah, look at my car. Something I'm now proud in and not thankful in. You see how that changes? Not to mention... What I'm thinking about granddad changing his word. All right. Granddad, what are you doing? You lying to me. So here what you've got is Paul saying, if this was true, if the law became the means of salvation that came 430 years afterwards, it is taking the character of God into question. He is changing. He is not being true to what he said before. And now it becomes something of works. And this is something that the folks coming into Galatia were trying to tell the believers in Galatia. Uh, that, well, okay, that was great. You know, you, you received Christ by faith and the grace of Christ. That's great. But now, just like Moses, we're going to add the law to you and you're going to follow through. And Paul is saying that is not how it works. Verse 18. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. The promise has been annulled, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Martin Luther, writing about this text, says this. Uh, Lady Law, you're not coming on time. You're coming too late. Look back 430 years. If these were rolled back, you could come. But you are coming too late and tardily, for you have been preceded for 430 years by the promise to which I argue and which I gently rest. Therefore, you have nothing to do with me. I do not hear you. Now I'm living after Abraham 
a believer. Or rather, I'm living after the revelation of Christ, who has abrogated and abolished you. Thus let Christ also always be set forth to the heart as a kind of summary of all the arguments in support of faith and against the righteousness of the flesh, the law, works, and merit. So, if this is all true, if, if we see the priority of the promise, that it comes from the law, and, and the law in no way, no way knows it or changes it, then what is the point of the law? And that is the question he asks, verse 19. And in this question, why then the law? We're going to find out about the necessity of the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. All right? Um, in other words, mankind, in their pride, in their self-delusion, will look at God and say, God, I can obtain your standard. I can be right. You know, at the uh, American Idol show, I hate the name. Um, I think it probably reflects more than it should uh, of reality. But one thing I can't get over is the uh, expose of human nature. Uh, And I've talked about this before. You know, the, the, the first shows... You know, everybody's so delusional, uh, and, and they're all coming up and thinking, man, I'm going to be the next American Idol. And, and you know, the more they brag about it, the worse their performance will be. Um, you think, oh, no, you know, this is going to be bad, uh, because they are so confident. And, uh, and then, sure enough, I mean, they just, I mean, they redefine horrible uh, every time. It's like a whole new re- redefinition. Uh, and, and so they, they do this, and, and then, you know, one thing I liked about Simon Cowell, See, sometimes he really told what was needed to be said. And <laughs> that was horrible. My ears hurt, you know. Who, who told you you could sing? You know, just <laughs> that's that lack of mercy sometimes. That's, there, I appreciate that sometimes. But, uh, but, you know, what happens, you know, they, then they show that person and they, they walk away and they're mad. I mean, they're angry and it's a bleep, 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 you know, that. And they're thinking, Simon doesn't know anything. They don't know anything. And they just, and they get angry. All right. Here's what happened. The judges became the law and revealed to them they can't sing. And they shouldn't ever sing again. And they hate that. They hate that, that diagnosis of their, their abilities. And so instead of listening, then they turn in their pride against the very thing that called them sin to begin with. That is what mankind does with God. We read the Old Testament, we read the Ten Commandments, and we tell ourselves, I'm better than most people. I deserve to be in heaven. I've done the best that I can for crying out loud. What else can I do? And then the law is telling me that this is sin. I hate that book. I hate your God. I want nothing of it. Can you tell me how that's different than the self-deluded singers? What does the law do? The law comes in and reveals our sin. It was added because of our transgressions in our pride. We think that we can obtain God. It was given for that purpose to let us know we're not all that. I've shared with you before how getting right with God is much like crossing the the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't really matter how far you can swim. 
If you can even swim a mile, you still got a thousand more plus to go. It doesn't really matter. That's life in our own efforts. That's life in performance of works, the life and the law. But several once in a while we would we would see these these folks standing on the beach and we're thinking, hey, you know what? I can do that. I can swim. I'm good. I mean, I'm I'm an Olympic athlete. I can do these things. And they get out to the breakers. You know, the breakers, the, the big waves that are coming in, and they're swimming. And then they get blasted with cold, salt water in every cavity of their, of their body. And, in, and as they're swimming, the wave pushes them back further when they started. And they go again, and they're on white water, only to get to the same point where the brave wave comes again. You know what, what every single one of those waves are? It's the law. It's the law. saying you fool. You cannot cross. You cannot cross. You can't even make it past the breakers. Much less Africa. It's not going to happen. The law was added because of transgression. The monster of self-righteousness, the stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. It's the person who knows they're drowning that reaches for the lifeguard. It's the person who understands that they can't do this, that needs a promise. And it was put in place through angels by intermediary, now, intermediary implies more than one God, but God is one. Now, he's referring to this point, what I believe is the Old Testament, the law, that when you need an intermediary, you need, it's because you have two parties that are not in agreement with one another. So someone comes in between. And so we have in the Old Testament, the law, Moses acting like this, and evidently angels were involved in Mount Sinai and, and this happening. And we find in this scene with Mount Sinai that when the law was given, that mankind shirt back in fear were running away from the mountain, scared to death, and it was told them, if you even touch this mountain, you will die. And so it was very clear, by the law, they were nowhere near God. And so this intermediary takes place. But in verse 20, now intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. In other words, he's saying in the New Testament, there is no intermediary needed because God uh, is at one. There is no disagreement. God is performing this in the promise in Genesis uh, that we looked at. You remember when God walked through the animals? There's no intermediary because this is, this is between me and myself. I don't need anyone. It's between me and myself. I'm making a promise to you that is met on my conditions, not mankind's conditions. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, the law was not given for the point of you being justified before God. It was given to you for the point of you understanding and realizing how much you need help. I remember thinking I could sing at one point when I was a child. Then we went to one of these little deals where you record yourself singing, singing a song to the Beach Boys. You know, it sounded great in my mind and the earphones as I was singing along with the Beach Boys and then the tape didn't have the Beach Boys singing. Just had me. I listened like, that sound like this? This is horrible. 
I didn't ever see again until in high school and I had a person teaching me because I understood I needed to be taught. So the law performs that for us. It says, look, you cannot have righteousness by your own efforts. It's not by your ability to keep the Sabbath day. It's not by your ability uh, to keep uh, to not bow down to any graven images. It's not by your ability to honor your father and mother. It's not going to be by your ability to make sure you don't say the name's Lord in vain. That's not going to be how it happens. But these things are given to reveal to us how far away we are from God. And then, verse 21, the law is not contrary. It's just not given for the purpose of giving life. If that was the case, then a promise would be needed. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Isn't it funny that the proverb that hunger makes the best cook? When you're hungry, everything sounds good. Everything sounds good when you're really hungry. The law is given to us to bring a hunger for us. To know what we are not. And to put a desire in our heart to be right with God. So that we don't appeal to our flesh, but that we appeal to the promise of God. To say, God, you said in Genesis 3.15 that someone would come from mankind who would crush Satan's head. Satan is active and alive in my life. I feel the force of it in my life. The forces of this age is still within me. I appeal to that. God, you said someone would come. You said in Genesis chapter 12 that there would be someone coming from Abraham's line that would be uh, someone that would be a blessing to the all nations. You said this in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, in Genesis 22, when Abraham was offering up his son Isaac, you stopped him and said, no, that wouldn't happen. You provided a ram for him. And you said in that moment that you are Jehovah Jireh, that God will provide it. And on this mountain, one day you would provide it. You said that would happen on Mount Moriah. And and we keep on reading. We go all the way through and we see uh, in in the, the prophecy uh, for the sons that there would be a tribe of Judah that would come and that a scepter would come that would never be removed, that this would be some kind of king of, of earthly significance and that you said in, in the prophecies that this would be of a son of David who would come and that there would be someone who would do this and that would come of Solomon's line and that would happen in Bethlehem and that all these things would come to be. And when I see this happen in the Bible, I understand that it is Jesus who has come, who has delivered me from this present evil age it is he who i rely on not the 10 commandments not the 600 plus commandments the positive and negative commandments of the law of god i don't even know all of them how i'm going to live by them but jesus has come to make god known and i can know him and in him is the fullness of the law and when I, when Jesus invites me to be one with him, I am one with the fullness of the law. So when I come before God and by faith I've entered into his presence and, and God sees me with Christ, he sees the fullness of the law. And then you think, well, what about all those curses and the things where I've messed up? Well, that's Jesus. He sees that on Jesus. And Jesus is able to outlast that curse. That's why Paul is so very diligent, angry 
even. When those who are believers start trusting in works and dilute and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ... Because when we start trusting in our ability and we say that we're a better Christian because we've done this and not did this instead of us being in Christ and grace, then we, it's the same as saying that Jesus dying on the cross is not enough. It is the same thing as saying it is not enough. It is not sufficient. And you need something else besides Jesus on the cross. Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ. He's enchained to him. And he's going to defend him. And he's my savior. And I'm going to make sure that everyone knows that he's your savior too. And please, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of heaven, for the sake of hell, do not trust and anything else outside of what Jesus Christ has done. Read the law. Be condemned by the law. Know that as the Spirit of God works in our life, the Spirit of God may and will lead us down paths that are spelled out in the law, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, like love your neighbor as yourself. But when these things are done now, It's not my confidence. It's not my confidence. It is my demonstration of what God has already done. When we're baptized, it's not not the assurance of your salvation. It is the evidence of what God has done in your life. When I worship God, it's not so that I can maintain or obtain some better standing before God, but it's to reflect what God has already done in my life. And so as I live my life, whether I eat or drink, I can do all to the glory of God, holding carefully what God is doing in my life. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But I will tell you, is a faith that will not remain alone. A faith alone that saves you. But a faith that will, because it is faith and cannot be separated from actions, will live it out. Just like when God said to Abraham, because I see that you trust me in giving up your only son, I will bless you. Was it because Abraham was doing the law? No. He was just living out what he believed. He was living out what he believed. And you can make the argument, if you're not living it out, do you really believe it? But I would say the solution is not to act differently. The solution is to trust differently. Do you trust in Christ? In Christ alone? Let's pray.